0: hello everyone part two of some theory here we're talking about deontology in this particular episode and deontology different than utilitarianism remember utilitarianism the outcome is the thing that matters most that is the only ethically relevant basis for judgment did you create a specific positive outcome or didn't you at the end of the day, at the end of the year, at the end of your life, that's how you evaluate periods of time ethically. Is did you create a greater benefit? Deontology cares not about outcomes as much. Deontology is primarily focused on your adherence to duty in the execution of principles and not outcomes. Okay, so that makes for us, it's definitely a contrasting ethical situation. Now, Immanuel Kant is this unreadable German philosopher of great renown. I say unreadable because every philosophy graduate student has had an experience of trying to tackle that mountain, which is reading Kant, and it's incredibly complicated, and it makes no sense. And even in terms of translations into English, often the uh, (laughs) <laughs> Often it ends up with incredibly long run-on sentences that don't necessarily make sense, and it's it's sort of a sport to subject yourself to Kant to see how you make how you make out. Most people will get a PhD, never having actually, actually, truthfully cracked his books, but rather have read commentaries uh, on him by other people uh, in the hopes of being able to get the idea without actually having to confront the guy. Anyway, that's a, that's way off topic. Immanuel Kant is sort of the most one of the originators, and he's the most famous of the deontologists. And you read this in the in the textbook. Now, two things in the in the the primary uh, approach for deontology is that we should follow duties, and that duties are d- derived from. The categorical imperative. The categorical imperative, if you don't remember from the book, act only according to that maxim which you can be at the same time... You, sorry. Start over. Categorical imperative. Act only according to that maxim which you can at the same time will that it should become a universal law. Okay, so a maxim is um, a rule of behavior that should be the rule for everyone. Right, so that's what we're talking about here. They're saying, what behaviors should everyone be engaged in? And that would make it a more moral and reasonable world to live in. Right? And those things should be duties um, for everyone. And everyone should adhere to those duties. And that's how you take care of moral problems. Right? If everybody just acts appropriately, you don't have moral problems. You don't have any difficulties. right? Because everybody just does exactly what they're supposed to. There's a certain elegance to the simplicity of it, as opposed to, <laughs> as opposed to some of the struggles you might have, um, working through, you know, outcomes because you could have good intentions, good plan, have everything worked out. Here's what I need to do, assuming you have time to do all that. Let's say you did, and you say like, okay, here's what we're going to do, and then it turns out to be the wrong decision. Happens to institutions all the time. Assuming, assuming. That they mean the best, that they have good intentions, and they have capacity and competency to execute good plans. At the end of it, did they? You know what was the outcome of that? Well, sometimes the outcome is still crap, right? It turns out to be a disaster, no matter what. So, uh, you think about vaccine distribution in Ontario right now. They have, I, I assume they have relatively competent people in charge of it. They have good intentions. They want people vaccinated because for a whole bunch of reasons, but there's no, they have no secret agenda not to vaccinate people. And yet still problems happen, right? It doesn't execute properly. It doesn't get distributed properly and so on. So, so the best of intentions and a really good plan don't always work out when you talk about outcomes, but in deontology, it's simply saying the outcome doesn't matter. It's the intention of the actor that matters. Right? Are you fulfilling your obligation? And the rest of it, if everybody did that, then the problems would be minimal. There's a subcategory uh, to the categorical imperative. And it's often called the practical imperative. And I don't think it's called that in the textbook, but I think it's really important to understand. So the practical imperative, and it comes up a ton in medical ethics, some formulation of this, is it goes like this act so that you treat humanity whether in your own person or in that of another always as an end and never as a means only now you might be wondering well what the, what the heck does that mean it means you should never use someone as a means to your own ends and not as a person who is an ends in themselves to make it even easier don't use people for your purposes Recognize the fact that they have the right to be recognized as somebody who has their own goals and ambitions, and you shouldn't just use them to suit yourself. Now, you've all been in, you've all know people like this. Maybe you've had relationships with people like this who just use somebody for their own purposes and have no regard for that other person that they're using as a person of their own. Right? They just simply use them. The only purpose that person serves is to suit this person's needs and purposes. And once they're done with them, they discard them like they're garbage. Right? They don't care about that person. So for example, and this maybe be confusing at first, but think about this. If you take an Uber or you take a cab, you're not wanting to have a deep, meaningful relationship with the cab driver. You want this person to drive you from here to wherever you're going. Right, So it's not a, are you using that person? Well, no, not necessarily. You're, you are using that person. That person is providing a service that you're taking advantage of and you're paying them for. But you would be using them as a means only to your own ends. If something happened involving that person, say they, they started feeling chest pains. And you said, I don't care if you die. You just got to get me, wait, you can die once you've gotten me where I need to go, where I need to go. Or you basically have no regard. They get a phone call that's really important, and they apologize, and you say, "Nope, I don't want to listen to a phone car. I don't want to listen to a phone call in my car ride. Hang up." Right? That is sort of saying this person has no value or has no concerns of their own that are more important than my own. My own imp- needs are the important thing. You need to service those, and I don't care about the rest of it. That is using someone as a means to an ends, and not as an ends in themselves. And most of us aren't like that. You may know people who tend towards using people, and that's, that's not uncommon, I think. But it would have to be this kind of like exclusive, like it would have to be the worst case you can imagine of that. And unfortunately, maybe some of you know someone like that. I'm sorry that you do. In a medical situation, so an example that I've been uh, directly familiar with was there was this patient, um, we'll call him John. That's not his name, obviously. And John was um, a fella who enjoyed his parties. He was a business student uh, years and years and years ago at a university. Had graduated. His parents uh, moved to Canada from somewhere else. And they ran a store, a convenience store, kind of a grocery thing. And they, they worked their tails off to get this kid into university. Super and really nice family. Like some of those people you meet and you feel like enriched just having talked to them. Even if it's not about anything in particular. But they're just so, they had like a spiritual vibe. You know, like that they put off such good vibes that you couldn't help but feel better having been in the room with them. Their son was super nice guy he um anyway, he went to a hospital uh, I came into the situation because I was working in ethics in clinical ethics in the hospital um not in London anyway came into the hospital or came into his situation um, super nice guy, really nice parents um, the chart said that he had uh this is years back now, but he had HIV. And this was at the point where antiretrovirals weren't as effective as they are now. So it still meant that uh, HIV infection usually meant um, further complications. Uh, So you develop some other kind of disease, typically cancers, that killed you. And they were facilitated by HIV. Anyway, so the, the thing was that the parents who were super nice didn't speak any English at all. And he was translating, but even though they didn't speak English they were just so wonderful right they were so pleasant they brought the staff food i mean it was it was crazy right they were like the best patients to they were the best patients family people some people have ever had and uh, the problem was that uh, they had a there was a nurse who came in to work she was subbing she was a casual which means she worked when called in rather than having a regular shift and she spoke the same language as him so they go, they hit it off great right so they were, he was chatting to her in in the, his mother tongue, ta- his first language, and everything was super, and then the parents came as they did every day, every single day, right, they were there as long as they could be there, and it became, uh, at one point, that nurse who was working, and she came out of the room, and I happened to be out in the hallway, and she, um, she shat on me in tr- <laughs> What a tremendous anger, and I didn't understand what it was. The problem was, the problem was that she had learned um, from the parents that they thought their son was in hospital for uh, cancer, which he had. He had something called uh, Carposi sarcoma, which is a don't Google it. It's just a horrific looking illness. Basically, it involves it erupts in these big, huge, festering sores um, as the cancer progresses, right? And he had that. Um, and what was the, the cause of this ruckus was they didn't, the parents didn't know he had HIV. And the, the reason why this became a big issue was that because, uh, John was going to die, it had been established that he wasn't going to make it. And they were switching to a palliative care, uh, scenario. And in the town that this was in, they had just started a palliative care at home program where you could They would equip you to take care of your dying family member at home with medical help um, and do it that way, because that was thought to be more humane. And it makes some sense, right? If I'm going to die, I don't want to do it in some clinic, ward, hospital room. I'd rather die at home. And it was perfect. The parents initially, of course, were upset to hear that this was switching to palliative care, but they, of course, kicked it into gear pretty quickly and said, okay, well, this is good because he can be at home surrounded by our religious um, environment and our cultural environment. And that would be, that's the perfect way uh, for their son to die, right? That was their approach to it. It was really, it was really amazing. Anyway, but the problem is with, (laughs) so the nurse had started, started to instruct the mom and the dad in universal precautions. So for those of you who don't know what that is, Um, It's all the gloving and washing and basically hygienic infection control measures you have to take to have somebody die at home, especially somebody with HIV. Um, Anyway, and the mom was unimpressed. She did not worry about precautions. Remember, she doesn't know that he's got HIV. She thinks she has cancer. So she says to the nurse in their mother tongue, right? Like, why am I worried about his feces and his blood? You know, he came from me. I know him best. He doesn't, nothing about him scares me. Nothing about him can hurt me, uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? So it's all very touching. But the reality is that his blood and his feces and stuff is dangerous. Um, So they needed to teach her that. And she didn't seem to understand. And the nurse didn't understand why. And then she went back to him and said, to John, and said, Why does your mom not understand this? What, What am I doing wrong? So he would confessed to her that he hadn't told his parents, because he'd been translating all the information, right? So he'd been omitting a lot. So then the nurse said to me, like, you're going to have to fix this. And so I said to the doctor, you're going to have to fix this. Because rightfully, it was his job, of course. Um, so it became evident that, so we were stuck with situation. It's a long story, but here's the moral of it. John told us that he really thought that if his parents found out he had HIV, that they wouldn't accept him home. That that would be a deal breaker because they would have thought that he got HIV from homosexual contact. And I said, well, what if you told them the truth that it was because you shared intravenous drugs, which is the truth. Um, And he said they still won't, although that would have been a better explanation for these particular parents. They still couldn't accept that that they would still believe that it was from homosexuality and for them that's that would be unforgivable so it was really um, difficult because at that point you're thinking, okay, how is it that people who are so nice and like unbelievably nice and joy to know that but if you introduce this one variable, it would be I mean these people love their son so much and yet you change this one variable and say okay well he has hiv the possibility that he could be gay would be such that it would fundamentally change all the emotional reactions and all the connections anyway that was the that was the situation so now boil it down you lie to the parents you run the he goes to die at home you don't tell the parents the truth which is that he's hiv positive You send him home, he dies in the best possible situation, surrounded by loving family, um, you know, basically the ideal death if you have to have one, versus, uh, now the risk of that of course is that one of the parents gets exposed to his body fluids, gets HIV contamination. It's very difficult, but it happened, it happened, right? It's happened in the past, not in this case, but it happens. And also you're, you're, you're increasing the risk of the caregiver, right? The whole point was to make this a this low-risk situation, manageable risk situation for a person to die at home. You don't send somebody home who's deeply infectious with some kind of disease. And not that HIV makes you deeply infectious. It has to be fluid transmission, right? But anyway, it was highly, you pose a risk to this peop- these people. You put them at risk and you don't tell them what the risk is. That's kind of a big thing. On the other hand, you tell them the truth, they um, reject their son, maybe as he's predicting, and he dies alone in the worst possible situation. So, if you're working at it from an outcomes point of view, it's an incredibly difficult dilemma, like literally a dilemma. You're going to do, make a decision, each of which has tremendous negative sides to it. What do you do? Now, I'll tell you what happened. Um, They uh, told him the truth, and he died in the hospital alone. That was, um, they disappeared and never came back. I don't even know if they claimed the body at that point. It was a pretty horrific uh, situation. The categorical imperative analysis of this case would say that lying is wrong because you cannot universalize lying as a good thing. Right? So you tell the truth and the outcome doesn't matter. Right? Because the outcome how people take to your honesty, to your truthfulness is not your concern. Right? Because that's their personal defect that's causing them to react in a negative way, right? In an uncaring, unkind way. Practical imperative Lying to the parents sort of deprives them of their role to make decisions for themselves, right? Just whether they agree, whether I agree with their decision or not, and I don't, I don't lie to them to get them to make the decision I want them to make. Because we were all invested in this story having a happy ending because we were all deeply emotionally involved, right? We wanted this, we wanted him to die at home, surrounded by love and by his culture and his religion, that's what we were all hoping for right and that would be the that would be the best possible situation especially in palliative care where there's no real happy that's the happiest of happy endings you can get really cuz everybody dies in palliative care right no patients walk out so it deprives the parents of their entitled role to make that decision for themselves and treats them as a means to my ends or to our ends which was we want this death for him if we have to lie to them or deceive them in order to get what we want, then that's fine. Well, that's not fine. Kant would say that's, a, that's using them, right? They're going to be loving caregivers and you want them to be that. You don't want them to be individuals with their own ideas, regardless of how you feel about those ideas. You don't want pe- those people to have beliefs of their own. You want them to do what you want them to do for your for the happiness, the conclusion of your story, right? So that is a big problem. So deontologists, some of the principles, some of the things that they created duties out of, uh, this is later on, this is sort of post Kant, and it ties into principalism, which is, practically speaking, the dominant ethical system that works in healthcare. So we're going to talk a bit about that as well. So deontologists typically say, there's a principle of autonomy and respect for persons. So, autonomy is that is autonomous, right? Auto A U T O and nomos N O M O S is Greek basically for self-rule, right? You run yourself. And we'll talk a whole lot more about that coming up. But basically it's the idea that you have the right to make decisions for yourself. And people can't make decisions for you so long as you don't have some kind of capacity issue, right? But if your brain works fine, if you are normal, then you should be allowed to make decisions for yourself. And deontologists say that what we have to do is, that's part of the duty is to respect that in other people, right? Respect other people's autonomy. There's a principle of impossibility, Right? You can't be expected to, to do things that are impossible. Right? We can expect, so you think in healthcare, there can be a lot of expectation to, to save a life. But it doesn't matter the equipment, the supplies, the training of the people. People come into the emergency room too wrecked to live right they've been in a traffic accident they've been in they've taken a massive overdose there's nothing the most trained the best equipped physician and nurses nothing they can do to save some people it was it is impossible to so to say it's your duty to do this is wrong it's not possible you can't have a duty to the impossible you can only have a duty to the possible Principle of fidelity and right action. That's another one. Now, fidelity you might know from infidelity, right? That's when people cheat on their spouse um, sexually with or emotionally with another person. So fidelity is literally that you sustain you you adhere to your oaths and obligations. So if you make a promise, then you stick by that promise. That is an act of fidelity. And then right action. So, I mean, the idea here is that you make a pledge explicitly or implicitly, and it gets a little trickier with implicit. But, you know, if you're a physician or a nurse, then it's pretty evident and sometimes explicit that you have pledged to help patients to the best of your ability. And if you do not do that, that is an act of infidelity towards the obligation you have to care for your patients. duty of equality and justice. The idea would be that we would execute our lives, we would carry out our obligations without unjustified discrimination against others. We'll talk about this injustice next week, but there's lots of situations. We we discriminate quotation marks. In other words, we make decisions between people all the time. So long as that is decisions being made for a specific reason that pertains to the decision, like it's relevant to the decision and justifiable to the decision, then you should make that. We all do that, right? You chose one course over another because you like the prof better, right? You say, well, that's discriminating against the prof. You say like, well, no, it's because I can't stand this person's lecture style, And I'm not going to pay for a class and take a chance on a poor grade because this person sucks or whatever, whatever kind of decision you make. That sounds familiar to me. So if you're this person, right, you have discriminated, but it's not in the negative sense. You didn't choose not to take a class with that person because they were uh, a person of color. That's different, right? Because that's not relevant to the teaching or the educational thing, the moment, That's personal bias, right? And that's how we'll talk about those being different and what the distinction is. But obviously in your decisions, and if you were a healthcare professional, you're there to treat a patient, each patient individually, based on their situation and what you think is best, what typically is best treatment for that particular patient in that particular situation. Not because you don't like this type of patient or other reasons, other biases. It's strictly based on condition the patient's condition their chance for recovery based on different treatments and so forth it's not about other things so you'd strive to not have those other aspects if they exist in you interfere with your decision making and we should always strive not to have them in our decision making at all principle principle of beneficence beneficence is spelled with benefit basically right in there the key root word is benefit so you're trying to do good things and this is not just healthcare professionals this is all of us right we should seek to do good things for people right benefit others be a benefit to others so for the people who know you are they enriched in some way based on that relationship or are you somebody who's a detriment? Are you drawing away from other people? You have no value to them, but you're only drawing in. See, this ties in with Kant's idea of, uh, you know, using people and not using people. Right? If you benefit others, that's part of you, you know, seeing other people as ends in themselves and doing good things for them just because, right? Doing something positive. Principle of non-maleficence, right? Do no harm. Okay, and these two are separate, and it's, there's four a reason. Because I could say to you, don't do any harm to somebody. Don't harm people. And you could say, okay, that's good, I will do that. However, it doesn't mean that you do anything good in the world. We could all be neutral, right? We could all just sort of like not do anything for others, but not hurt others either. It doesn't make it necessarily a great world. Kant saw that... Part of what we need to do, and the later deontologists saw, what we needed to do was actually place an affirmative obligation on people to do positive things. But in healthcare, too, right? You, everybody, I mean, I've had surgery. Some of you had surgery. That was harmful, right? A man, it was a man in my case, took a blade to me, cut me open, took stuff out, stitched me up. That's harmful. Like, you know, that's stabbing if you do it out in the street, But he did it because it was necessary in order to create a greater benefit. When we say do no harm, obviously medicine involves harm, right? I give you a drug that makes you have side effects, that's harming you. But the idea is that I'm creating an aggregate of benefit. Or it's necessary to prevent further harm to you. Now... The idea in medicine is, do no, basically, it should be qualified as saying, no, do no unnecessary or excessive harm. So I shouldn't then jump to the most radical kinds of treatment right away that has the biggest side effects. Typically, the the severity of the intervention also has more in detailed and more uh, difficult side effects. That's why they often want to start, physicians want to start with, the minimal intervention and move up as they, until they find something that works. Typically, unless the illness is something like late stage cancer, where the intervention has to be massive, they try to modulate or titrate their intervention, right? Start low, start with minimal intervention and work their way up the scale until something works. Uh, People find that difficult sometimes because they want like, a cure right now but the problem is that we first of all you don't know that serious intervention will work necessarily sometimes they do but often they don't and secondly it has the biggest harm attached to it and they're trying to limit the amount of harm that they introduce to a person so that is why that is important right now in, in healthcare, basically the principalism system is down to four principles and they've They've come up with this notion that these four principles are the most important, right? Autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. So if you're in a healthcare, there's 23 healthcare professions recognized in Ontario. So they're legally protected. So for example, a registered dietitian, the title of that job is protected and only belongs to people who have the appropriate education and registration with the College of Registered Dietitians. So that mean, and so that term is protected. I cannot call myself, for example, a registered dietitian, because it's illegal for me to do so because I don't have the qualifications or the membership in the college or any other certification to say so. I can call myself a nutritionist because that term is not protected. Okay, um, I can't call myself a chiropractor. I can't call myself a naturopath in Ontario. Right, those jobs, those professions are all regulated, and part of the regulation process. Part of the process of becoming a protected and legally recognized healthcare uh, uh, profession in Ontario is that you have a college, uh, so basically like a group of peers who run certifications and, and basically administer and discipline members within the community, right? So, and always, basically always... The ethical system that governs practice in those healthcare professions are these four principles. And I'm going to talk more about these healthcare principles um, in the next episode. But in the meantime, I think that's probably enough. There's about half an hour for you. Um, I hope you all have a good day. Uh, Watch for more of this. We're going to have questions and answers coming up too. And uh, I'm going to have more information about the midterm coming up. In the meantime... You folks have a good day, and I will talk to you all later.